Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer, and before that, as a small-town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in documentaries, reality television, true crime, game shows, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleed.com and at Bleed Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Bleed at Bleed.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is an outstanding director editor, producer, and writer. His credits include McMillions, Last Chance You, Big Mouth, Drunk History, Cheer, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which is where I met him. And he's got a three-part documentary series entitled The Murders at Starved Rock. And he directed this and he co-executive produced it. Meet Jody McVeigh Schultz. Jody how you doing, brother? How's it going, man? It's good to talk to you again, Steve. I know it's been <laughs> forever. Yeah, we met on Extreme Micro Home Edition. You were cutting, and I was just like, man, I was like a story producer back then. So, right. yeah, and it, it's so this is like one of those cool things where, you know, you know, I read all the trades and everything, and there it is. It's like Jody McVeigh Schultz is directing this three part true crime docuseries. And I was like, whoa, like I haven't talked to Jody in forever. I've got to get him on the podcast. So, yeah, I'm super psyched to talk about this because, you know, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first like real true crime documentary that you've directed, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So, so it's called, you know, it's called The Murders at Starved Rock, which just the title is, is exciting and makes you want to watch it. It's, and it's for HBO. So this is not, this is no joke. Like this is hardcore. It's about the you know some murders in 1960 in LaSalle, Illinois. So I don't want to explain it. Why don't you tell everybody about the murders at Starved Rock? Yeah, 60 years ago in 1960, there was a triple murder in this state park called Starved Rock State Park. It's uh, about 90 miles outside of Chicago, and it was the crime of the century at the time, and a huge amount of press. This tiny town, it's a, a, a place called LaSalle County. And there's like five very small towns right in this cluster around the park. And they were kind of inundated with Chicago press. And it became this huge story and a ton of pressure on the authorities. And it went unsolved for, you know, eight months. And then a local man confessed to this crime. And about... A few days after he confessed to multiple people, he recanted his confession. And for the last 60 years, he's maintained his innocence as he's served in prison. So, yeah, I mean, I had experience with a little bit of true crime. I'd worked on a series called Exhibit A for Netflix that was about sort of the trickiness of and sort of fallibility of uh, forensic science, especially when it's taken as kind of God's truth, right? A lot of people hear science in the courtroom and they're like, well, 
how could that be wrong, right? Um, and people were kind of overstating the what the proof they really had when it came to bite marks, hair analysis, blood spatter, that kind of stuff. But the director I was working with was also cutting confession tapes. That was kind of, they were like sister shows. And that shows about false confessions. So I'd done a lot of sort of reading and watching that show and learning about false confessions. Obviously, there's something that is part of now, like our cultural zeitgeist, like they're understood as a thing that happens, right? That I, I think even 10 years ago, people wouldn't have understood, like, why would you ever go and admit to something you didn't do? We're finding out that people have falsely confessed to things like the murder of their own child, which is so unbelievable that we think that's impossible and that could never happen. And I would never do that, right? That's the ultimate test. Like if I was in that person's shoes, I would never do that. But, and one of the lawyers of this guy, Chester Weger, who was convicted of this crime said something interesting when we were interviewing him, he said, look, if you're not in that person's shoes, you don't know that. You don't know what it's like to be in an interrogation room for eight hours straight, thinking through all these things. So yeah, that part really, really fascinates me. You know, in a show like The Confession Tapes, you have the audio tapes or there's sort of like this grainy VHS. We don't have that here. We have kind of like transcribed Q&A that serves as the confession, but the interrogation room, and it was ours, is sort of a black box. And even before then, he was doing like 24-hour questioning sessions, which is sort of, we can't even fathom that now. And it's pretty much accepted that this would not, this kind of investigating wouldn't hold up in the courtroom now. And so we have this kind of time capsule case is, is the way we've described it, right? Where you have a case that went to trial before Miranda writes. So he asked for a lawyer at one point and a case that went to court before uh, Brady violations, which is where the prosecution has to give over any exculpatory evidence to the defense. And before like the Civil Rights Act, like all these things that protect people who are accused of crimes. So it's yeah, I was fascinated from the outset. Sorry, I went <laughs> very in depth. But yes, uh, I was super excited when I heard about this case and started researching. How did the project come to you? I know that you worked with uh, unrealistic ideas, you know, Archie Gibbs and Mark Wahlberg's company on McMillions. Did this project come through them or did you find the story? How did you get uh, attached to the project? So yeah, the, the project came through unrealistic ideas. Uh, Archie Gibbs, who is just an amazing producer, really, really, really smart with story. And also there are people who are willing to be mentors to people that are coming up and give people chances when they see what they think is promised in that person. And I, I have to say, like, I'm so indebted to him for seeing sort of potential in me and deciding like, yeah, he had the chops. I worked with him on McMillions. Um, I think he could tell I had story sense. I was the lead editor on that show. And he was like, you know, I'd love to work with you. And I told him I wanted to direct. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So he brought me 
this story and they had actually been approached kind of from two sides. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but Chester Weger had an attorney working on post-conviction stuff for him. And that guy, his name's Andy Hale. And he's actually worked in the documentary space as well. It's interesting as people are working on exoneration cases, documentaries have become sort of one of the ways in which you can get some traction, right? Because getting public attention on stuff that's kind of been hidden can really change the game. And then at the same time, this guy, David Reculia, was also got in touch with Archie. And David Reculia is a really interesting story. So, and to me, this is why this story becomes more than just your average true crime, because I'm very interested in a story about somebody who might may or may not be innocent. I mean, that's obviously the central question here. But what takes this to something where like an HBO, I think, is interested is that we had this guy, Dave Reculia, who was the son of the prosecutor in the 1960 trial. And he, as an adult, so he had grown up listening to stories about the case. Chester Weger was his boogeyman as a child. He said he he grew up, um, you know, his dad was a single father. His mother uh, passed away early in his childhood. He used to wait for his dad to come home, like sleep in his dad's bed with him because he was terrified that Chester was going to come through his window and, you know, attack him. His, his grandmother said, look, if he ever gets out of prison, like he's, co- he's coming after our family. Wow. Um, so that's his, you know, sort of original sort of relationship to Chester. And he kind of grows up and throughout his experience in this small town, he's being told, oh, your dad put away an innocent man. He's like having fights with kids on the schoolyard. Later on, he goes and has like this really illustrious, successful career in as a barber, in men's hair, hair care products, and sort of travels the world, really grows his scope outside of this town. But he comes back because he gets this article where he finds out that they're reopening uh, Chester's case, that they're, they're applying for clemency from the governor, and that they want to do all this DNA testing. And people are saying, look, your father put away an innocent man. They, they called him a li- essentially a liar in this article. And to David, he's like, well, my father's my hero. Like, is it possible that there's anything to this? And I think he really wanted to find out, you know, all these kind of rumors and stuff that had always been going on through, through this town. He wanted to kind of finally get answers one way or the other. And so he started a documentary around 2003 and he was filming essentially all sides of this case, but obviously started his dad was a prosecutor. He started with kind of the authorities in this town who were still around. And again, this is already like, 43 years after this case happened. So not everyone is was still with us at that point, but a lot of people were, and he started talking to them and he sort of got one side of the story, which is that what I would call the official account of this story. There's been a book um, written about it, which we interview the author of that. This guy, Steve Stout is kind of the, he's a journalist, but he's like the, the town historian, I would say. And He also, during that time, started to get in contact with this sort of ragtag group of um, locals 
who were investigating it themselves. It's funny because it's like um, if you've watched Don't F with Cats, these kind of, you know, online renegades of DIY. Oh my God, yes. One of my yeah. favorite docs ever. Yeah, it's so good. But what's interesting is imagine that, but it's it's sort of like at the birth of the Internet age. So. They're still like going to the microfiche at like the county library and like photocopying stuff. And they have these like giant poster boards and, you know, sort of putting research together that way. And honestly, I think for a long time, you know, these people were kind of not really taken seriously. But what's interesting is that at, at one point in the sort of long appeals process, Chester gets a public appellate defender, this woman named Donna Kelly, and she's really looked into the trial transcripts and stuff. And she said, you know, look, I, I found a bunch of things that just didn't seem right, right? There were just errors in the case. I felt like there were some real issues. And so she applies for clemency. So essentially she goes to the clemency board and says, here's all the reasons why he's innocent. Um, you know, you should, you should release him. And David went to that clemency hearing and sort of heard this case for the other side for the first time. And it sort of sent him off on this roller coaster ride. To me, when I was interviewing David, right, I, I could tell that he would be a perfect lens to view this from because, you know, we already kind of, as we were formulating, like how we might tell the story, we understood that sort of how you reveal information and perspective is so important because there are radically different POVs to view this story from. But David was such an interesting lens through which to view the story because he came from such a radically specific place and he went through such an insane roller coaster ride. And honestly, it's not like one twist or turn. It's like multiple radical shifts along the way. Um, and I remember interviewing him and thinking like, oh, this is the structure of the film. Like even in the interview, because you heard him talking and he's like, yeah, I went and I finally got to meet Chester and it just like, it changed everything. And so you're like, oh, like it's, it's just become so clear. You're like, oh, here are the tentpole pieces in this story that, that will, that will turn the plot. Did you really enjoy that aspect of documentary filmmaking, maybe compared to some of the other styles and forms of nonfiction that you've done? Like, you know, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, the way we met, this kind yeah. of like feeling things out as they went along. And you're kind of figuring out, oh, wow, this is what the series is going to be just as you're doing an interview. Yeah, it, it's it's different. What's What's interesting is I think that you have to approach some of the preparation the same way. So I know you've, you know, you talked to Archie before, you talked about Duck Dynasty. I was actually on Duck Dynasty as well. A soft scripted, it's like a reality sitcom, right? Very planned out. But what's interesting is you then get that material 
And those guys are really funny. They're not improv comedians, you know? So you then shape that stuff to really have rhythm, you know? So I was an editor on that show to really have rhythm and to really pop and be funny and weird and take the things, the little weird sort of inside jokes they have, bring them even sort of farther. But you go in with a ton of prep on that show. You know what you're going to get when you're going to film. With this, you want to prepare like in that same way. You want to have sort of the story in your head beat it out. But then you need to be able to 100% shift as things happen. So it's like we had researched the story a lot. We kind of had a sense of what it was, but we also wanted to remain flexible. And so the story took massive evolutions multiple times in the process. You know, first off, you start talking to subjects and you're, they're like, you know, you actually need to talk to this person because they're kind of like the key to the story. And you you start to realize like, oh, all right, here are the, the people that have really amazing stories to tell. And then when you're filming, you're also rewriting. And then in the edit room, multiple times you're rewriting you know hbo was wonderful to work with on this for a bunch of reasons one is that they give you real latitude to rewrite and rethink something and they also pushed you to do that like they really motivated us to rethink certain things um we for a long time i'll just give like a a, a example of this so for a long time, we were sure that we wanted to wait to reveal that David, who's kind of the lens through we're seeing Chester's case, that David was the son of the prosecutor because it's such a good like piece of information. And we were like, well, what if you learn that, you know, I don't know, midway through the first episode at the end of the first, there's a lot of kind of ways you could do that. And we just really wanted it to be this like, whoa reveal but what's interesting is it's also such a good hook for the series it ended up being something we reveal in the cold open and it really changed you know that sort of where we reveal that changed how we structured the first episode and so we went through a bunch of different iterations with hbo kind of guiding us and you really have to take you know networks know the story but in some ways they are sort of seeing it for the first time. And you always have to, any person who's not deeply, as deeply entrenched in the story as you are, like their sort of takeaway from first time viewing is so important. You have to treat that like gold because otherwise you can get lost in your kind of preconceptions, your, your deep knowledge of the story. So yeah, they were amazing to work with and, and, and multiple times, as the story progressed, I mean, we had an ongoing sort of court case that we were reacting to, but they allowed us the, the freedom to really sort of change things up as th things needed to be changed. Did you go in with a very specific style that you as the director wanted to establish? Yeah, we did. We knew that this was a very specific place. And we wanted to sort of highlight that this LaSalle County, it's like 90, 90 minutes outside of Chicago, but it does feel like another world a little bit. And part of the reason why, you know, this 
this story was interesting is because it had become an obsession of this town. So we really wanted to highlight that. We also were working under, in, in a pandemic, we knew that. So David had hours and hours and hours of documentary footage from the, two, the early 2000s that he licensed to Unrealistic. And we knew we were going to structure some of our story around that. And we knew that otherwise we couldn't go in with, you know, just a verite sort of follow doc style that we'd have to be a little bit intentional about how we approached it and be more interview heavy because of the reality of the pandemic. I mean, we shot in Chicago in December of 2020, which was like a very intense time. Yeah, that, I mean, that was Chicago. the height. Yeah, you had a major <laughs> yeah. surge going on at yeah. that point. Yeah, and, and honestly, we, and again, Unrealistic was really good to work with because they were like, you should do what you feel safe doing. Like, we want everyone to feel comfortable. And it was one of those things where we went through all the safety protocols. HBO had a bunch of safety protocols in place. But at the end of the day, it was like looking at everyone in the crew and being like, all right, are we, we're, we're good to do this and we're ready for this. And we just were very safe about it. And, and honestly, that meant sometimes not getting what you would normally get in terms of just following somebody around for a day going everywhere they go. It, it had to be a little more exact. But I think the key for me was you capture people in their worlds. Even if you have to take someone to a local business for a location or whatever it is. We, we filmed David in this local courthouse where the trial actually took place, the actual courtroom. But the context always has to inform the story. So I was very much not going to do interviews where I was like a, a, a blank atmospheric room where you can't tell where you are, right? It was like, no, put somebody in the middle of the kitchen where they live, surrounded by all their tchotchkes. <laughs> you know, it was like, and, and we had honestly some really amazing just places where people were super open and just brought us into their world. And we ended up with some amazing interview frames as a result of that. Gabriel Pate was the original DP. We actually, because it went over over the course of a long time, we brought on another good friend of mine, Andy Radzewski. They both did amazing work, but the key was really like really full interview frames that say a ton about the subject. As somebody who's done comedies like Drunk History, Big Mouth, Duck Dynasty, did you <laughs> have to really go into a very different mindset now directing something as serious as, you know, really? Yeah. <laughs> You know, the, an epitome of a pure true crime documentary series. Yeah, it's interesting. You really, really have to be careful about how you approach something where the stakes are so high for those involved. I mean, you had three families that were really destroyed, just the ultimate trauma they experienced. And it had reverberations for generations. We talked to the granddaughter of one of these victims. And then you had uh, Chester Weger's family, who he spent 60 years of proclaimed innocence 
behind bars and their whole family was torn apart by this and it had reverberations for them. But on the other side of this, if you are doing an interesting documentary, you're going to have strange characters. You're going to have people who become so obsessed that, you know, things get strange. You have a town that's very quirky and very unique um, with beautiful people in it who are like really wonderful, really wonderful to us, but who also some of those people are a little quirky, a little strange. And we really wanted to capture that. And so you are at every point trying to really forge like exactly what that exact tone you want is. And it was never goofy, right? It was, it was, we always wanted it to be like, this is a little strange in a way that was complex, right? And dramatic and also a little bit funny in like a, you know, dry sort of way. I think, interestingly, my experience on Last Chance You actually helped a lot with that. Because what's interesting is I got the gig on Last Chance You as an editor, season one, and this guy, Adam Leibowitz, who's the Supervise. He was the supervising producer. I believe he's a EP now. But he he had seen my credit in Drunk History, and he was like, "This is Verite Doc, but we want somebody who's done comedy to be able to <clears throat> work on this." And it kind of was a perfect combo because I I loved comedy. I also was really into documentary filmmaking, and I really loved football. So it was kind of this perfect nexus but you gotta love um, yeah you gotta love those projects when all your passions come together. yeah it was beautiful but they really were like we want this to be funny these kids are funny their situation is really strange these are kids that uh, you know last chance you i don't know if you know it but it's about these uh football players like blue chip recruits who for whatever reason kind of failed out at these high like sec type schools for academics or behavior or whatever else they come back down to the junior college level but they're like stuck in the middle of nowhere mississippi like a town of like i think it was three thousand, and really it's kind of less than that and their circumstances the day-to-day is just so funny because they're funny and their circumstances are so strange and we really went after that. We like tried to have humor, you know, there's like dry humor and dark humor when they're going through something awful, but it's totally absurd. And then there was just literally like the sort of college hijinks that you'd have when you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, I think in season three, our first episode, there we're in Kansas at that point and just like, a runaway bull shows up on the field and there's like a guy with like a tranquilizer gun nice. just following the bull and all the kids are like no I'm like running away <laughs> and it's just insane and you're like yeah this is that was such a quintessential moment of that because you have these really heartbreaking yeah. stories and really it's like a character based show but it, within that there's this absurdity and I do think there's this absurdity here What's different is that it, it, that can never be sort of central, right? That is always, you're writing this line of how you deal with the absurdity of it. You always have to be coming back to 
the tragedies that occurred here. And you can decide what you think, which parts of this you think are tragic, but there's definitely, you know, family trauma, generational trauma that's been experienced by everyone involved in this. And so that has to be the heart of a show like this. As the guy behind <laughs> the creative vision here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, like you said, Archie kind of gave you this opportunity and it's for HBO. When you're an editor, you got a whole group of people who are working with you and you're taking, you know, episodes on your own and maybe you do a couple episodes in a series. This is your baby. What kind of pressure did you feel, you know, when you got this and as you went through it and how did you handle that pressure? <laughs> yeah. If you ever want to lose some weight, <laughs> Uh, the great diet is the uh, too nervous to eat lunch because you're, you know, producing a a high stakes documentary. Um, Jody, what do you what do you want for lunch? Nothing. Yes. Nothing. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, it was super intense. I think it's interesting. You, there are documentary subjects where really everyone you talk to is excited to talk to you about it. In this, really everyone save a few people were very hesitant even if they were, were definitely willing they were very hesitant to talk about it very guarded about talking about it because it's a really difficult subject and everybody has really strong opinions about it especially in this town and for us it was super important that we not just talk to people on one side of this and do like, like essentially one way you could approach this documentary is you do your research, you make a decision on what you think the truth is. And then you only interview people who confirm that story, you know, side of the story. And we were not at all interested in doing that. The idea was to really hear from everyone. Um, also as filmmakers, you're trying to guide the audience into like sort of what is fact what's fiction, you know, who should you trust, that kind of stuff. And so you're sort of feeling that out, but I did want to let sort of everyone say their piece and to really show how multidimensional the story is. And so as a result, you have people who are diametrically opposed, like, like lifelong enemies, <laughs> and you're interviewing them like the next day. And so it's, you, it's just, you have to really be sensitive to how, how you're approaching them and, and just being aware of this sort of how you're interacting with people because it's a super small town. Like essentially everybody knew they said it, we were having lunch. They sent out like a news group to be like, so you're in town making a documentary. <laughs> I was like, you know, you have to be kind of just sort of careful about what you say, but also in a just like open transparent way just say like hey we're going to talk to a bunch of people and we're open-minded and that's how we approached it and i think people respected that you know once you get to meet people face to face they understand sort of where you're coming from and you know you can kind of establish a rapport it's really hard it, it, it's it's interesting one of our um producers on this a guy named adam ridley who is with me sort of from the beginning, great producer, his, his way of contacting people was always like, 
a very short intro in let's say a Facebook message or an email and really just like as quickly as possible you want to talk to this person on the phone because otherwise it's so hard to explain like the the immediate reaction from somebody especially somebody in a small town will be oh this hollywood jag off is trying to make a, oh, yeah. a salacious right. story that exploits everyone yeah that you know and so you have to dispel that myth. And so it's immediately something you're working against. Against, right. But I do think, you know, we're all humans. And in fact, the thing you immediately, you immediately realize whenever you're making a film like this is that, you know, what we have that connects us all is so much more powerful than what is different. In terms of the true crime genre, I mean, we all know, like it is, there's a million true crime docs and doc series out there. Netflix yeah. does feels like one every week, but I think it's one every month, right? Were you trying to do something different or maybe because this was your first, you just kind of wanted to make sure this was to the HBO standards. Again, it's this line you have to walk. So I was very, very interested in doing a true crime series that is not just about the crime. It is not just about answering the, the central question of who done it, right? Because I think at the bottom of all of these stories, there's something else, a sort of a cultural truth or a communal sort of realization that you're after, right? And so, I was very interested in approaching the, the story this that way. And I think we had two really interesting interesting things going for us in that regard. Obviously, David's sort of unique POV on this as somebody who was connected to the case, had a bunch of sort of personal preconceptions and then sort of had all of had to question everything he thought he knew. And his sort of generational experience of this there's, there's in, in a lot of ways there's a father-son aspect to this and and really just a generational aspect to this Chester Uyghur's son we talked to him this guy Johnny and he ended up in prison for much of his life he actually the most time he spent with his father was behind bars and his experience of being told like you're just like your father and having this stuff sort of affect his life. And, and honestly, people can make up their own minds about somebody like that. But it just, it was so clear to us in filming this stuff that there was a story about how generations deal with trauma like this. And on the victim side, the same thing. The granddaughter of Mrs. Murphy, who was one of the victims, talked a lot about how, like, she wasn't born yet, but the reverberations of this have passed on. It's like been inherited almost. And then the other piece that made it different from a, a typical true crime story was this idea of how mythology in like a small town affects our memories, how we view what's true and what is not true. And it was just so clear, there was so much myth built up about this and so much narrative. And so, so many people were like, well, like, why do you believe what you believe? Well, I believe it because like, 
my grandmother told it to my mother who told it to me. It's like, that's how entrenched the sort of built mythology about it is. And that's why for somebody like David, Chester was the boogeyman when he grew up. And that's why for other people that we heard so many stories that are just like wildly untrue, right? About why he's either guilty or innocent. And they'd just been mixed in this sort of stew pot. We, we went to a festival and they were making this like special chili called Burgoo. So the Burgoo Festival, it's this giant Burgoo cauldron and they're kind of stirred around, right? And th the truth becomes this thing that's larger than the truth, right? And so we're really exploring this idea of myth and communal truth, right? And how that's created. So that said, and I know it's like a long answer to get to this. That said, you are making a three-part true crime show for HBO with certain audience expectations about true crime. And you want to subvert some of those because you look, everybody knows the sort of marketplace is over full with these stories, but you also need to have certain sort of aspects of being able to really follow along and like play detective that people are watching these shows for. So you can't go in and be like, I'm going to have like a three episode tone poem on, you know, like the meaning of, of truth, right? So you have to balance that. And actually it was really helpful. Again, going back to HBO, they had so much experience with this genre and sort of what expectations were, how much we could sort of subvert those expectations, but how much you needed to be like, look, people are looking at every clue. And so you need to be able to present them with like, here's, here's the initial evidence. Here's some setup for things that'll pay off later, even if they're not necessarily like necessary, they're, they're not necessary at this juncture. You're teeing everything up and you want things to really play out. Like it's pretty intricate how much somebody watching this is looking for clues, information that they're going to apply later. And so you want to really let the audience go through that experience of trying to solve a crime. I don't know if you saw, there was an article. It was an article specifically about true crime on Netflix. And so I thought it was perfect to ask you about. Yeah. And the article says that, you know, I'm sure, you know, like Netflix, you know, in 2021 dropped, I think a true crime docuseries every month. And you know, obviously there's a massive thirst for true yeah. crime, whether it's HBO or Netflix or even now Hulu, Amazon, whatever, but only two of their docuseries cracked their infamous top 10. And those were Night Stalker, the hunt for yeah. a serial killer and Crime Scene, the vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. I think, I think that... Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami may have cracked it. Yes, Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami did crack it later on in the year, but not nearly as long. It didn't stay as long. But the rest of them, shows like Murder Among the Mormons didn't, This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist, which I really liked, did not. The Sons of Sam did not. And I was curious to ask you, 
you know, as somebody who just, you know, is, is this is becoming your world. You just did this big three-part uh, true crime docuseries. Is there a case, could there be too much true crime? There is too much true crime. <laughs> as somebody who's making a true crime doc, there is. You know, crime is one form of story that can tell us something really interesting about the world. If you're just relying on making a true crime documentary and there's nothing else to it, I don't think it's worth doing. So yeah, I think one thing is you've got a lot of competition, so you need to make it compelling, but it needs to be about more than just crime. And I think the other interesting thing about it is that you also have to make a show in the context that we're all currently living in, which is this glut of true crime shows. And I don't think you can make a show that's not at least a little bit self-aware of that phenomenon, that, 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 that people are so obsessed with true crime. And so that, in some cases, I think becomes part of your story. And it did for us. There's a sort of meta layer to this, which is that some of the things that happened in the sort of town's obsession with the case, in local people taking an interest, these Facebook groups that have, you know, just like intense followings, people having arguments online, that is all part of a culture that is obsessed with true crime and obsessed with crime cases that they have no personal involvement in and then become incredibly personally involved in something that really has not, had nothing to do with, you know, we actually, this is not part of our show, but at multiple points, Chester, the, the guy who was convicted of the crime and <clears throat> spent 60 years in prison, had people writing to him in prison and reaching out to him to say, hey, I've cracked your case, or hey, I have sort of this info that you need to get. They even at one point for somebody who became very obsessed with the case and involved with Chester had to take out a restraining order later because wow. that person was getting involved in his life. And the family is just very wary of anyone who says they can help and wants to sort of like take over control. And so, yeah, it's, it's very, it's a strange situation. People want to be the sort of person who cracks the case. People want to be, they want to have their version of it be the truth. So yeah, there's kind of like a hero complex at, at work and there's definitely like this obsessiveness that I think, especially during a pandemic, pe look, people become obsessed with researching something online. Anybody who's ever like, stayed up too late at night reading just a Wikipedia entry, you know, like that kind of stuff. You can become obsessed with learning everything about a case. And that's what happens in a lot of these true crime cases. What's interesting is when that meets the real world, where you're dealing with real people and those ways you in which you become involved have real life consequences. It's a really strange thing. And so the, the actual obsessive culture around true crime affects the true crime cases themselves sometimes, which I think is really fascinating. I have to ask you about drunk history. So, yes. you know, I, yeah, I like, <laughs> I am 
such a huge fan. Drunk History to me is like the perfect breath of fresh air and like big smile. Just, I can just watch a marathon of Drunk History and just laugh. Talk to me a little bit about that post-production process and the mixing, the recreation with the intros and the actual drinking and the kind of, it's such a unique mix and it really is a one of a kind show. Yeah, that was really my first thing after several years of sort of building my career in reality. And Jeremy Connor and uh, Derek Waters are the creators and showrunners there. Just really awesome people to work with. And they gave me a real shot having done that. I think in my interview, I was like, so I've worked on the show called Duck Dynasty. And they were like, we've heard of it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I don't think they had seen the show, but they, you know, I think one thing is they understood that I could work with interviews and was really capable of like essentially writing things together. Cause in that show, you have a drunk person and you have to really embrace their drunkenness, right? That's the whole point. But you also have to help them tell a, co- a coherent story. That's also really highlighting how drunk the person is it's a really interesting yeah sort of push and pull you have to do it's kind of sad that i actually feel like i learn things watching (laughs) drunk history like that is really bizarre yeah there are like high school teachers that show that show to their students there are a ton of stories that are like kind of the untold truth of something and to have that and then to have this sort of like delighted ridiculousness of slowly getting more and more drunk there is really something pure about that show and like just like really sweet, but also truth telling. Right. Which is kind of what happens when you get drunk. There's a lot of like, man, I really love you. <laughs> but also like uh, you're telling the honest truth, you know, when you're drunk. So anyway, I, I it was a lovely show to, to work on for the two seasons I was on it. But I especially I like totally was with you where I was like, I love this show. And so to get to work on those kind of things where you come in already loving it as uh, a dream come true. How drunk are <laughs> they, they? Because they are drunk. Yeah. I will say this. Uh, they get drunk over the course of the night. They're starting off in the first time through the story. They'll tell it multiple times. I would kind of consider it like a safety. Like you, you have takes in a movie shoot and you're like, all right, we'll yes. take one for safety if we know. Yeah, sure. But you, you do a safety run where they are just starting to drink because really by the end you may be yes. in trouble. And, and I will say they were very good about, there is not like this pressure. Sure. It's not, it's not like a, a frat house where you're like forcing, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're hazing people. Right. Into, no, it was, you know, you could drink it at sort of your comfort level, but there were definitely situations where it was like, like they had a nurse, on set to breathalyze to make sure that because you know you can't have someone of course having to be hospitalized right of course because they're doing this show i, w- I wish you would have shown that drink. that would have been funny yeah, right no but it was really intense and and honestly that's an interesting thing because i remember one of my favorite drunk histories was early when it was just on youtube and it's duncan trussell and he does um edison and tesla have this like war and it's a yeah. it's one of my favorite ones of all time, but he's like on the floor of his bathroom. Like he might be like 
next to a pool of his own vomit. And it's like, it gets a little dark, but he is like such a beautiful, strange person that like, it just works. But like, there, it was very important that it not go into this sort of like dark, awful yeah. territory that it could, honestly, if people get too drunk and they're really in a, you know, go to a dark place. Jody, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Before I let you go, tell everybody about the doc series and where they can find it and when. So the Murders at Starved Rock is on HBO and will be streaming uh, simultaneously on HBO Max. And yeah, you should watch it because it is a compelling true crime documentary that will really leave you guessing and take you on like a real roller coaster ride. But it's also so much more than a true crime story. It's really a, a, a story about, as communities, how we decide what is true and what is false. I love it. That was a good sales pitch. I'm, I'm excited. Okay. Everybody needs to watch it. Fantastic to catch up. And honestly, I, I run into so many people who I worked with early in my career. And it's like, just cool to see where everybody goes and as they grow their careers, sort of all that stuff. So it was a pleasure, man. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network. For everyone listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can email any questions you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.